Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 285. Your loyal co-hosts are here, Brendan Maluli and myself, Tom Maluli. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. Plenty of things to talk about this week post-Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was really late this year. Yeah, it feels like we're already at Christmas. Yeah, it feels right? like we're a week away <laughs> from Christmas, but it. it's today we're recording this. It's December 5th. I took down the uh, ornaments today from the attic, so it's definitely starting to feel like Christmas. Yep, and I had my tree up for yeah over, over a week now. It's cold enough, too. Yeah. The first piece that I'd like to introduce for discussion, this was published, we found it on CNBC, but it's probably going to pop up in a few other places, too. Rand Paul has a new bill that he is proposing that would let Americans pay off student loan debt with 401k money or IRA savings. Yeah, so this this news came out just this morning and obviously a lot of uh, opinions swirling about on it, but but the first reaction that I had was this is this is a step closer to something I think we've talked about before on the podcast. You think that uh, a step that lawmakers should make is is to allow student loan debt to be repaid uh, tax-free, kind of like how you make your 401k contributions or IRA. I mean, IRA is deductible, but yeah. you know, to pay that with pre-tax money, it would help. I don't think it's going to solve anything. It's not going to like get people out of student loan debt, but it would be a nice bone to throw people who have large amounts of student loan debt. Agree? Disagree. It's going to fix it? I think it's going to help a lot of people. No, so, I didn't say it wasn't going to help people. I said that it's not going to solve the student loan problem. Well, it, right now- It would be nice. Right now, we're not doing anything. Right. So I think this will help, and I think it will help considerably. I think we're going to disagree a little more on this. I'm getting a little tired of hearing about the student loan crisis. Nobody's on fire. Okay, so it's not a crisis. The average student loan balance is $37,000. Averages can be pretty misleading. Okay, but what do people spend on a new car? $37,000. Might might not be the same same people we're talking about. It may not be. You're right. Now, and and look, the average person with a, you know, $30,000 of debt or something certainly isn't on fire, but there are people out there with hundreds of thousands. Okay. I'm glad you brought that they up. They are on fire. Yeah, they are on fire. But you know what? They belong on fire. Here's why. We're talking about people that are going to law school, people that are going to go to med school or going to med school, and they are going to make a significant above average income for a very long period of time. It's not like they're an NFL running back and they've got a three or four year career. These people are going to be doctors and lawyers for a long periods of time, a hundred or $200,000 comes with the territory. That's the cost of going to an advanced education. Now, the other people who have $150,000, $200,000 of student loan, and they have a bachelor's degree, almost every single story that we read is because they stopped making payments on their loans at some point, and this loan has just continued to compound at 7 or 8% interest for a long period of time. Those, those are the ones we hear about. I'm not sure that that's everybody. So I'm not willing to paint with such a broad brush, but I get your point. I think once people start making money, they should be permitted to pay their student loans back with pre-tax dollars. We've said this now on multiple podcasts and in videos as well. 
and we've written about it too. It's yeah. and I, so I I'm agree. glad to see just, that, that Rand Paul is picking up my my idea. Right. Maybe he's listening to the podcast. Hi, Rand. Maybe. I don't know. Okay, a couple things. I don't understand why the money has to come from a 401k or an IRA because that's what that's the specific thing here is that you could take money. Uh, and we're assuming that you sent it in pre-tax to your 401k or IRA and then turn around and use it to pay down the loan. So they're moving a step closer to what you're discussing, which is just straight up paying it with pre-tax dollars. Right. But they're making it really convoluted and kind of stupid. Why should it have to go into the 401k first and then come out to pay the loans? Just um, like, just let it happen. Well, it would be easier if they could just let it happen. Yeah. We agree on that. And I think but- it's instilling something bad, which is that it's okay to go into your 401k and do stuff like this. Okay, I can see that sinister aspect of it because once you do that, it's like, well, I could do this for everything. Like I should just- Slippery slope. It is, you're right. However, if you take money out of a plan and it's not part of a loan, you're gonna have penalties and you're gonna have taxes. That What they're allowing people to do is take, under this proposed bill, is take money out without any penalty or tax. And, or tax. Right. And So why not just make it directly. easier? Why does it have to go in there first? It's because we don't doesn't have... doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I don't think there's an infrastructure in place that will allow... That will calculate a way for, for people to say, I made $50,000 this year, and I paid student loans of $6,000 this year. That should be eliminated from my income. I think it would be pretty easy because when you pay your student loans, you get a 1098E at the end of the year for education and it tells you how much you paid in interest, why couldn't it just tell you exactly what you paid overall and then you just make it a deduction right under the line for your IRA deduction on page one of the 1040? That would be great. If So what's so difficult it, about that? Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> that's, get it. That's my only yeah. thing. It's not It's not you who made this issue. I'm just saying, like, why? That's not very difficult. Yeah. These, these companies who hold the student loans are mostly backed by the federal government anyway, and they're already sending out 1098Es, so why don't we just update their reporting to say, hey, instead of here's here's what you paid in interest this year, here's what you paid this year, and, so, and write it off of your tax return. Part of deduction. the what I read in the story is that they're also allowing family members to take money out of their 401k to pay for someone else's student loan. So you may have a situation where a parent now says, hey, you know what? I can take five grand a year, 50, I think the number is 5250. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they make these numbers up, but yeah. take 5250 a year from a 401k without any kind of penalty to help Junior with his student loan. It may not necessarily be the person who took on the debt. It may be their family members, their spouse or their child that they're trying to help out. Mm-hmm. In that case, I would say, hey, uh, my wife should take money out of her 401k, and I'll take money out of my five, uh, 401k, and then we can do this even faster. I I think it's worth it. I actually do, because how many times have we talked about with clients and in podcasts and, and some of the other videos that we've done here where it's like, look, it's very important that you save money for retirement, but if you have this gigantic nut in front of you, how are you going to save for retirement when all of your free cash flow is going to pay this bill? Knock it out. Get it done. And if you can get that done in two, three, four years, finish it. But then get on the wagon and start maxing out your contributions to a retirement plan. You got some catching up to do. I don't see anything wrong with this. I really like it. 
I think it's okay. I think it could be improved upon. Yeah. I think it's a little convoluted because I, I agreed to your point that getting rid of some of that debt would be good for people, even if it's not their own. But you know what? no, I actually disagree with that because if they took out if they took out a parent loan to help their kid, and we're talking about now they can use their 401k money to pay that down because it's maybe five or 6% interest and you're not guaranteed to get any rate of return in your 401k. So use use the money to pay down the parent loan because that is a drain on the parent's cash flow. But for the parent who already has parent loans to take money above and beyond what they're doing from their 401k to pay the student loans that the kid signed up for, I mean, I've heard you say to people before that you can you can borrow for college, you can't borrow for retirement. That's right. So yeah, maybe $5,000 a year is, is insignificant, but $5,000 a year over a five-year period maybe to help Junior grand. pay his theoretical loans. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's such a great idea. It could be. Yeah. It could not be. Now, what I didn't see in the article was, did it say that this money could be taken out to pay plus loans, parent loans? Not sure. I I'm really, not sure either. I really doubt they have that much detail yet. This seems very half-baked. Also, that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> Yeah. That shouldn't be allowed. Hey, the parents said, hey, I'm going to help you go to college and I'll take the loan and I'll make the payments on that. That's what you do with a parent loan. You shouldn't be able to get a bailout from your 401k. I mean, I I have a problem with that. But if you want to help someone in your family because they're really struggling, this may be someone who's 26 years old. And it's like, hey, I, I know you're, you may have trouble finding a job. You may have you know, trouble getting started in your life, finding a place to live and getting a car and doing all this stuff. These student loans are a real problem. Here's help. I like it. Yeah, it would be simpler if they adopted the Maluli Asset Management Plan. Just pay everything in pre-tax dollars. So one one thing they noted was that, um, and not very many employers are doing this, but some employers have started, instead of a match for a 401k, have started paying student loan debt uh, as opposed to like a 4% match, they'll do the same amount, but it'll it'll right. go towards student loan payments, making that uh, a pre-tax mechanism I like, I like that. to do that. That could be an instance here too where where the 401k funnel makes sense because you could take you could take money that is the employer match maybe and you just use that to pay like if you get matched every dollar up to like 4% in your 401k, you put in your 4% to get a free 4% and then you take out the 4% extra, let's say, and use that to pay down student loans a little faster than you had been. Yeah. There's there's some good in this. I, I don't disagree. And I think, any like you said at the onset, doing anything would be more helpful than what we're doing now. Yeah. I'm just not sure that, I, I think maybe they should expand it a bit because yeah. I, don't, I don't think like the idea of it having to come from a 401k or an IRA makes sense. Because like you could see people then just using... Like an it's IRA like as account. like a conduit. It's like, yeah. why bother? Like that's such yeah. a waste of everybody's time and energy. It's like, oh, I have to go open a IRA at Vanguard so I can then turn around and write a check from it the week later to pay my student loan. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Could also, I mean, you could also make the case that a lot of the people who would potentially use something like this don't even have 401ks or IRAs anyway because they're, like you said, just out of college and just getting started. Um, so what 401k balance are they going to use to right help with this but yeah one of the other things in there the last thing is that they're they're talking about um getting rid of the phase out in income for the um student loan interest deduction uh, for taxes like too 50 I think it's like $65,000 oh okay something like that 
it's it's in that ballpark of 60 65 if you're single and then okay. roughly double that if if you're married filing jointly to your point i mean uh some people with some of the biggest um student loan balances probably make more than that because they're coming out of school and getting a job as right. uh you know a lawyer or uh you know a doctor and and even the the low rungs of those uh professions are, are starting off at pretty high earnings again i mean it's it's nice that you get a deduction for your student loan interest but that's not like a reason to sometimes people look at, at deductibility as like a reason to or not do something as if like deducting a few hundred dollars of interest that you paid like makes it worthwhile it's like item number <laughs> like, 16 on the on the pros and cons that's, that's way n- down on the list that is nice but yeah. not look, moving look, the needle look at the bigger picture yeah i'm kind of surprised that a lot of people come out of school with the debt levels that they have i i know like you had referenced before that the average it's an average is thirty seven thousand dollars but we've met some people who have you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, and didn't go to law school, didn't go to med school. That's a big hole. It's a yeah. big hole to dig out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they really should forget about putting money away for retirement until they get that down to a more manageable number. Right. So we see we see numbers like that, and then we see the corresponding articles that are like millennials have nothing safe for retirement. No kidding. If only we could do something about this crisis. Crisis might be a bit alarmist, but using averages is also a bit misleading. It so is. Yeah, yeah, there are some people out there really struggling. I don't think this thing from uh, Rand Paul is, is perfect, but a step in the right direction in, in a sense of doing something, right? Yeah. Like, like you said. So maybe this is something that gets kicked around by lawmakers and, and morphs into something that helps. Yeah. It's not, like I said, I think my point at the beginning was like, look, we're not solving anything with this, but it might help. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. We need to talk about what Ben Carlson wrote. And we, we hear this a lot, which is why I like this post so much from Ben. It's, it's you know, you hear um, that we've had a good year in the market or, or a good run, however you want to measure it. I mean, since 2009, we've had several blips along the way, like the end of last year, or 2011, where we were basically on the cusp of, of bear markets by how everybody tends to measure them. Market's been on such a good run, like how could it possibly continue? Meaning that most people subscribe to the idea that markets experience mean reversion, uh, meaning that periods of good returns are followed by periods of bad returns, which is generally correct. However, we don't know like when when the mean reversion is going to happen. So there's 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 no schedule. There's no predetermined amount of time. Uh, under which good returns can last for, and then they have to turn like like a piece of fruit that goes rotten or something. Like it's, we we don't know for sure, and so people get pulled in by this narrative that since things have been good, they will have to be bad, and and shouldn't shouldn't they do something to anticipate that bad? But what happens when you anticipate the bad too soon? And you're wrong because the market yeah. continues going up longer than than you thought was possible. I know many of our client experts 
have told us that we're overdue for a bad spell in the market? I don't know. Overdue? Yeah. Like I based based on what? Because right. there's there's nothing there's nothing to suggest that there's any like specific period of time that things can be good for. They, right. they can be good for a long amount of time. So what Ben Carlson wrote about was this idea generally, and then he had uh, some numbers just to just to maybe art- articulate this point that things can continue for longer than than you expect, and you just kind of have to take a stance in such a way so that you're not totally exposed if, if things do mean revert, but also so that you're not full of regret if you miss out on what what he showed, like another decade of returns possibly. Right in the 1980s, the S and P 500 was up nearly four four hundred percent when you included dividends, and this also included the crash of 1987, the single worst day in stock market history. So that's about 17% a year annualized, right. what what the S&P 500 did over that 10-year period. And so Ben's question was, how many people at the end of that decade would have said that the next decade was going to be even better? Very few. Right. But it, can, but I, it, can I but share it, a story from the fall of 1989 without hijacking the conversation too much? Sure. 1987, we had, of course, October 19th, 87, the market was down 22% in one day. And the market had been slowly building its way back through 1988. And 1989, it was actually approaching the old highs before the crash in 87. It took a, about two years to get back. And in October of 1989, I, it was a Friday afternoon. We were in the middle of all these leveraged buyouts. That was all the news. United Airlines was going through a leverage buyout, and the buyer of the airline was Donald Trump. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, he said he couldn't put together the financing. Stock market had a mini crash again. And everybody that you talk to, brokers and clients alike, all thought, here we go again. The market's going to completely fall out of bed, just like it did two years ago. And there's no way... No way the Dow could ever get above 3,000. And here we are today. Look look at us now. Nine times higher. To the point that you just made, uh, we, we did go above 3,000, obviously. We know, we, know, we know the answer now, and uh, I'm sure the fears at the time were very real. It's probably how people felt in 2011 when the market was down 20%. We were talking about double-dip recession. Here right. we go again. Right. Except U.S. debt got downgraded right that year. Yep, same thing. Except that wasn't that wasn't a good time to be getting defensive either. No, it was a terrible time to be getting defensive. Yeah. So following the seventeen percent annualized returns in the nineteen eighties of over four hundred percent or up nearly four hundred percent, the S and P five hundred then went on during the nineties to go up four hundred twenty five percent or about eighteen percent annualized. Pretty much the same kind of returns. Right. And so, and this isn't unique to U.S. stocks. Another great example was that during the 1970s, Japanese stocks did basically the same thing that the U.S. market did in the 80s. They were up nearly four, uh, 400%, about 17% a year. And then in the 80s, Japanese stocks were up almost 1,200% or 29% a year. And obviously, they then, in both cases here, eventually the mean reversion came. But... If you were calling for mean reversion in 1991, were you, were you right? You had to wait until 2000 to, to be wait correct. Nine years to be right. Right. So even if you sat in cash that whole time, the market then subsequently it didn't fall far enough for you to be vindicated. You still missed out on returns, yeah. and and the same thing goes for people. You know, with Japan, obviously returns have been pretty anemic since since that two decade stretch. 
but were were you right if you were bearish on Japan after after the big run in the seventies? No, you were. No, you, missed, you were absolutely wrong. You were totally wrong for another ten years. And so it's you know, same thing happened in the U.S. market where the eighties and the nineties were were great, and then the two thousands, the the first decade of this century was was lousy from two thousand to two thousand ten. Not much to show, right, for your efforts of investing in at least large cap U.S. stocks. Uh, and so just to the, the main point that, yes, mean reversion is one of the biggest forces that, that we deal with when it comes to investing. But anybody who suggests they know when this stuff is going to happen is out of their mind. They're, they don't know. No. They don't know, and they're only guessing. Right. And a lot, of, a lot of times we've come to the conclusion that it's really just, a, in many cases, a projection of their own worries. Right. That, okay, I feel like I've had, like my luck is starting to run out and I've done pretty well. And they, they approach it like they would a slot machine. And I just don't think I'm going to be that lucky going forward. So I want to cash in my chips. And that's a terrible approach to take, but we hear it a lot. You need to look at it from a probabilistic standpoint in the sense that that markets generally rise over time and they're not they're not like a zero sum game like sitting at a slot machine like that's the more time you spend on a slot machine the the greater your odds of walking out of their broke are but the longer your money is in the stock market the greater chance you have of having more than when you started yeah uh and so trying to like jump jump out and jump back in first off it's really really hard and i don't think anybody has shown a proven ability to to reliably do that time and time again because it's really a two decision event right you have to decide when it's the right time to get out and you have to decide when it's the right time to get back in right and i think that inherently people who maybe do do get out maybe their their hunch is correct and their their luck is turning and they get out then they get addicted to sitting in cash and they're always waiting for the market. Well, I'll, I'll buy when it, you know, when it, when the dust clears or, you know, when, when things are lower, except all that causes them to do is, is miss the bottom. And then they end up buying back in around or higher than where they sold out in the first place. And it's just to think that you're going to do that dozens of times throughout your investing lifetime and get it right on all of them. Nonsense. I think you're just going to erode your returns and cause yourself a lot of unnecessary stress. Okay. I'm again, going to sound like I'm older than I actually am, but story to relay in the late eighties, I cold called this guy who I, he had told me in previous calls, the kind of different positions that he had, the different stocks that he had, the, the different things that he had in the market. So I knew that this guy had money and he followed the markets on a regular basis. And at the time, the market was around 2000, the Dow. And he's like, I'm not doing anything until the market gets back to 1600. Now, you know, we had to go through a crash to get to those kind of levels. Mm -hmm. But I did call him when we got back near 1600. And of course, his response was, there's no way I'm getting it back into this market. Are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly how it's going to work, though. Like Everyone thinks that they'll be the person, uh, if they're sitting on cash, who's going to jump in when everybody else is panicking. But you're probably going to be panicking, too, or you're at least going to be scared enough to say, 
Yeah, I'm I'm gonna wait to see if this thing falls further. I'm not gonna put my money to work here. L- so me- buying buying when stuff is down is way, way harder than it sounds. Thanks for listening to episode two eighty five and we will catch up with you on the next podcast.